so Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for uh, coming on and talking to us today. You're very welcome. Kevin, are you talking to us from within a metal box or a very sparsely decorated room by any chance? <laughs> no, it was a, it's my kind of private office with a lot of hard surfaces. Um, Your challenge for the next five minutes is to make it much smaller and to cover it with soundpro- soundproofing. <laughs> egg- Big ass. <laughs> Have you got a lot of egg boxes? No, but I've got a lot of metal and, uh, I don't know, just hard stuff. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm imagining Patrick Bateman's living room now. <laughs> it started that way. This is going to be fun. But, <laughs> but, but when the second child arrived, it sort of went downhill after that. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Hi, I'm Kevin Hayes, former Managing Director of Atari Ireland, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as usual with Paul Drury. Hello. And Tony Temple. Hello. You'll likely recognise Paul's byline from Retro Gamer Magazine, and Tony from ArcadeBlogger.com. You should also check out Tony's new book, Missile Commander, A Journey to the Top of an Arcade Classic. He's been a very busy boy. On this episode, we speak to Kevin Hayes, an Irish native who started his coin-op career in 1978 as financial controller at the newly established Atari plant in Tipperary. If you played an Atari arcade game in Europe during the proverbial golden age, including popular third-party licenses such as Cinematronics Dragon's Lair and Nintendo's Popeye, chances are that Kevin instigated it, managed it, and signed it off. We also talk about goat burgers, growing one's own psychoactive substances, and the Pope, but not all at the same time. As always, thank you for listening, and please visit tdepodcast.net for all the usual social media links. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. I just want to start with something, Kevin. I heard that working at Atari Island, you were involved in the slaughtering of a goat. Is that true? Well, I was involved in the slaughtering of a goat. Sounds like I had a knife out or something. I did not. Uh, I I managed the situation is a better way to say it. I think in the article that you wrote about Atari Ireland, you mentioned the name of Tom Martinez. Uh, Tom Martinez was uh, was one of the original setup guys for Atari Ireland in 78. Mm-hmm. And he was a Californian. And Tom was the uh, executioner of, of the GOAT. Uh, we'd had, a, a, I can't remember now, six or seven caravans come park around us uh, by what the Irish colloquially called itinerants, traveling people. Uh, they were kind of living beside us. And then there are goats and animals started to stray on our property which was kind of annoying but it wasn't exactly as if we had this beautifully landscaped silicon valley type campus far from it uh it was pleasant enough but there wasn't all that much vegetation and the uh the goat one day i uh, I suddenly found out that tom had uh, got so annoyed about it he'd taken it into his own hands he'd he'd uh, killed the goat 
And I got involved then because the uh, itinerants came to me and said, you know, well, this is terrible. You know, you, you, this can't happen. We're going to have to go to the police about that. And I kind of said to them, well, OK, you know, to make just make things nice, we'll pay you for the goats. So they said uh, it was £25, say, at the time. And I was about to give them the £25. And they said, you, they said, you know, the goat was pregnant. <laughs> So I had to give him another five. That's brilliant. It was, a, it was a 30 pounds. I couldn't verify one way or the other. One of the main reasons Tom had come to uh, to Tipperary, he, he was a, a rugby player in California. He was a prop. Mm-hmm. Big burly guy with one eye. And and um, Tom, Tom played for the local um, rugby team, but one of his buddies on the rugby team was a butcher and he slaughtered the goat and I afterwards had goat burgers in Tom's house. So we got, we got some value for our 30 pounds. Atari goat burgers. Atari goat burgers. Um, just to give our listeners some context, I wonder if we could talk a bit about Atari Island as a business yes. and um, why and how. So it, it, clearly everybody is familiar with Atari USA, started in the early, early 70s and you know was, was, was clearly an American-based company serving primarily an American market. But, you know, video games was becoming a global business and they wanted to sell coin-operated abroad. Am I right in saying that initially they sold games under license that were manufactured in France for distribution throughout Europe? Yes, in fact... Uh... They had this joint venture with a company called Socodemex, right. a French company um, based in, I think, Bombe le dame It was near Besançon, which is just east of Dijon in, in, in eastern France. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how long that lasted. I was never involved with that, never went there. You know, I knew the Socodemex people afterwards because they were Atari Ireland's distributor in France. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the, they did that. And I, I don't never really got the full story, but they were never happy with the joint venture arrangement they had with the French people um, for various reasons. So they decided to do their own thing in, in, in Ireland. Yeah, and so the the French thing, presumably, were they an offshoot of Atari or were they just a company that was licensing games from Atari? Um, I don't know what the exact business arrangement was. My, okay. my sense was that it was some sort of a joint venture. That was the way it was described to me. Now, how it was set up legally, I never knew. It was long okay. term. It was terminated by the time I got there. you got to remember, this was 78. This was just Atari Ireland got set up just before Space Invader kind of kicked the market off again, you know? Yeah. I mean, basically the thing started in 72 and had a big flurry for a few years and, by, and then, then Atari was bought in 76 by Warner Communications. But by 78, the coin operated market was pretty small beer, you know, it wasn't a big thing. It was just it's only, just literally months after that when Space Invaders came along, it kind of suddenly the whole thing took off at a different level. Uh, so it was kind of fortuitous. Atari, Atari Ireland was set up to do 25 games a day with a capacity to expand it to 50 games a day. Was the, That was the paperwork, the theory at the start. Mm. Uh, so they didn't see like a big a big business that, hey, well, they were right. It ultimately was that. But for a few years in the, from 80 to 82, 83, it was uh, you know, a very busy business. Yeah. And can you talk a bit to why, why it made commercial sense for Atari to own their own factory in Ireland as opposed to, you know, get a third party involved? Um, I, I think they wanted control. I think they were unhappy with uh, the Socodemex, the joint venture arrangement. They wanted something that they had complete control over. And, you know, Ireland was pushing pretty heavily for, for business at the time, for US businesses, Silicon Valley businesses to come to uh, to Ireland. And I guess they met up with them that way. I mean, interestingly enough, almost at exactly the same time, Apple came to Ireland, uh, you know, with months of each other. I can't even remember which way it was now. Uh, 
but uh, there was that kind of stuff was going on. And um, they, um, they, Atari sort of set up Tipperary on a very kind of low budget. We're not, we're kind of half serious about this, but we're not really. The company was set in, the factory was set up by a guy called Gil Williams, mm -hmm. a Welshman, a mechanical engineer who lived in the US and had, had worked for Atari running its manufacturing and in fact had been there and got a small portion of the uh, the buyout from uh, Warner Communications in, in, in 76. Um, so he, he was the main man and he set it up on a kind of very cheap, low budget, don't bring a lot of people from America, don't spend a lot of money. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So why Tipperary specifically? So Ireland was selected, obviously, for the enthusiasm of the Irish government to get overseas companies in from a sort of local employment uh, point of view. But I just wonder why why specifically Tipperary worked in terms of its location within Ireland? Well, if you look at a map of Ireland, uh, one, it was relatively near Shannon Airport. We needed to bring air, air fly in a lot of the, the, the printed circuit boards and specialized various things over time. We had a, a wood factory pretty near us. So obviously, one of the big things was to make wooden cabinets locally. And uh, I think probably as much as anything else, the IDA, the they call them Industrial or Irish Development Authority, sold them on. They had a what they called an advanced factory pre-built there. They built this 24,000 square foot box, if you like. Um, with nothing in it and it was available and it was cheap and they, they sold it to them on that basis. And then, you know, the, just the flow of the thing in Ireland, if you look at it, the, the printed circuit boards would come in on Shannon Airport to the west of Tipperary. You, you get the wooden cabinets from Art Finnan, which was 20, 25 minutes away uh, by road. And, and then you could send the completed cabinets that had been put together in Tipperary and ship them about an hour and a half, two hours down the road to Waterford, where there was a pretty good container terminal. It's an interesting setup because there are no production facilities to build PCBs in Ireland. So the hardware was shipped into Shannon. Yeah, and it made no logic. You know, these were all specialized one-off boards. And yeah. it was to tag on an extra 20, 30, 40% to Tipperary on a, on a production run in California made more sense than setting up a separate printed circuit board facility in, in Ireland. That made no sense because these were all relatively small runs. Mm. And the engineering costs and all the rest of it just didn't make it worthwhile. Plus, you've got to remember these boards were custom boards that were being designed, and there was always mods, there was always changes, and, and the engineers were right beside them there in California. But if you had to do it deal with Ireland at the same time, it would have been far worse and more difficult. Yeah, of course. And can can you talk a bit about the acquisition of the plant in Ardfinnan? So yeah. Murray Kitchens and how that came about. Yeah, well, there was two factors in that. The main components that value-wise that we put in in Tipperary was obviously the wooden cabinet and the wiring harness. And we decided, okay, we were buying the wiring harness from a subsidiary of a company called Kronberg & Schubert uh, in Waterford. And they were suppliers to BMW and German car companies, all that kind of thing. And it was decided that for tax reasons that we needed to add more value ourselves. You know, I, And I don't even remember, I'm not even sure if I fully understood it that time the logic of it all but whatever uh, the Kronberg and Schubert thing we sort of gradually phased out of that and we started making our own harnesses in a sort of a separate building near us in Tipperary uh, that was one part of it but then the other part was the wooden cabinets we basically bought the business from there's a kitchen cabinet company Murray Kitchens mm -hmm. they had two plants the the Art Finnan plant was basically only supplying us particularly when we ramped up production from 25 to 125 a day in the first six months of 1980. 
Can you clear up the Jim Riordan story, Kevin? So early production numbers from the Ardfinan plant were relatively low and it was clear things had to be streamlined. And as I understand it, Jim was part of a team brought over from Atari USA to, you know, come in and crack the whip and sort of make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I read the article. Jim makes it, I say Jim has a John Wayne type of personality and uh, he told his story. My story is Jim was there for about eight weeks. Okay. You know, while I was there, I was there for over 300 weeks. If you read that article, you'd think, well, Jim really started the company or something near to that. It's not at all true. Jim had a minor involvement, a useful involvement. Um, remember, the company was set up and through 79, we were building about 25 games a day. Mm-hmm. Breakout, Super Basketball, all kind of low production runs. We did all those games, uh, 25 a day. And the theoretic maximum, we always thought was like 50 games a day. But suddenly they said to them, when asteroids um, took off in um, late 79, early 1980, we just had orders coming in like we, could, we couldn't, 25 a day was obviously not going to work. We needed to ramp up production. So Jim came over with a couple of other guys and, and helped us. Um, particularly in the wood factory because, um, you know, and, and he made a contribution there, but it was, it, it, we'd have got there anyway, maybe he got us there a little bit earlier. But at the same time, you know, in the middle of all that, we had to, he didn't get us there fast enough. As I always remember in midsummer of uh, 1980, we finally got up to 125 a day. We had to ship wooden cabinets, knocked down, of course, in from California. Oh, wow. Which pretty much for a couple of months, which pretty much wiped out our profits as air freight costs on, on wood from California was astronomical. Jim left out that part, you know, because he didn't see the bills. But, you know, I'm an accountant uh, by trade. <laughs> I see the bills. I see the bottom line. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's an, an, another an, another side to it. Yeah. Um, if I was to say who set up Tipperary, I would say it was Gil Williams. Gil Williams, a mechanical engineer from from the south of Wales. So the games were shipped out of Waterford to the east of Tipperary. Yes, mainly. mainly. Some some of them were, the the ones to the UK went up different ways, up to Northern Ireland or through Dublin or whatever, depending where they were going to. I was going to ask which European countries you shipped games to. Uh, Our main markets, the two big markets were Germany, and the UK. Okay. But we shipped games to you know, pretty much everywhere else. Not so much to Spain because they had, uh, it was just difficult then. It was EU, but they made it made life difficult for uh, for our stuff to get in there. The, the, the Spanish did. I think uh, that wouldn't happen now, but back then it was just problematic. Uh, some games to Italy, um, you know, obviously Belgium, the Netherlands, that kind of thing. But, you know, the dominant, I would say 80% of our market was taken by Germany okay. and uh, the UK. Presumably there were Atari personnel on the ground out in these markets taking orders from distributors? No, no, not not, not, not at all. Okay. In fact, there's. I'm glad you said that now because we, we uh, the, initially when, when the, the orders were being taken in California by the uh, the international sales group that previously had dealt with Soka Demex and everything else. But then in 1980, uh, we hired a guy called Shane Briggs, who was quite a well-known salesman in the industry. Shane was an Englishman. Uh, he'd worked uh, in the coin-op business uh, for quite a long time with a company called Streets Automatics, which is down oh, okay. in the south of England. Shane had worked in, he'd gone, he'd moved from England to work on the east coast of the U.S. in the coin-op business. And then he'd become quite close to Atari and he worked for a company called Bellum, which was out of New York City. It was an international sort of import-export company of uh, specializing in coin-op and he worked for them 
when we heard him in 1980 and he came to live in Ireland. We never had, had any people on the ground in, well, France we had a little bit. Okay, interesting. And Kevin, I was wondering if you could, if I could pick your brains and try and clear something up for our collector friends over in the USA. Hmm. So um, on many collector forums in the US, um, go out and sort of, you know, find old classic arcade games. And they very often come across Irish built games like Centipede or Asteroids with, you know, distinct silver coin doors. Mm. But just, just wondering if, if you could perhaps shed any light on why an Atari cabinet built in Tipperary could possibly find its way back to the US market. You know, I think it was just a function of the market. We never consciously and would never have shipped them directly to uh, that market from Tipperary directly, but mm. I can imagine, say, the UK distributor, uh, when the business was really hot in the sort of 80, 81 years, 82, maybe a little bit, and there was huge demand for these things, that probably some of this, there was some leakage from some of the European distributors that they shipped them over there that had made it, it there's worth a while, they couldn't get enough from California. Mm-hmm. So they ended up taking some of the, uh, some of the European Irish games to Canada. That's the only logic yeah. that makes to me because, uh, you know, in normal times, it, it made no sense at all. Kevin, um, I believe you came to Atari Island or, or to Atari from Pricewaterhouse. Well, so yeah, yes and no. I mean, go on. out of college, I'd spent four, three and a half years with Pricewaterhouse in Dublin uh, in their audit and tax departments. And then I spent 15 months working for a bubblegum manufacturer outside of Dublin. Okay. That was a disaster. And uh, Did it blow up? <laughs> It literally did. It went to chapter, uh, what the Americans call chapter 11. It went into receivership. Uh-huh. And it's a sticky situation, for God's sake. It's just very sticky. You know, if you've ever been in a bubblegum factory, it's not the most pleasant place. At that point, it was a subsidiary of a U.S. multinational called W.R. Grace, which was involved in all sorts of things. Uh, and I went in there. I was tired of the, quote, Price Waterhouse kind of world. I didn't really like it. Okay. Uh, and uh, I went in there, but that was a, it was a disaster. I knew the day I went in there, this is not going to last too long. I thought I'll give it two years, but it didn't give me two years. <laughs> it spat me out in, uh, in August of 79. Well, I mean, the, the, the bubble gum puns are coming on thick and fast <laughs> so you went from uh, you, you you went from auditing paperclip companies to working for one of the biggest names in coin up video game design um yeah was that exciting was it a big deal yeah it was but again you know it wasn't as, it was a small business and i thought you know my, my kind of if i had a plan and i'm not a great planner but if i had a plan it was spend a couple of years in different companies get some experience or whatever so i joined as the financial controller uh in uh, august of 78 yeah, I was hired by, hired by Gil Williams. And I, I knew straight away, this is kind of a different company. My my interview was in a, in a bar in Tipperary drinking the Carlsberg. I always remember that. We didn't ever went to an office. It was none of that stuff. We just sat at a, at a counter in the Royal Hotel in Tipperary and drank a few um, drank a few beers. And, uh, okay. And Atari's salary offer. I also got phone interviewed by a guy called Dennis Groth, who was this chief financial officer of Atari overall in California. He, he did this by phone. Right. Dennis, uh, subsequently, if, if you look it up, he's a very known, well-known high-end uh, vineyard in, in Napa Valley. Okay. But uh, Dennis, uh, we got hired. But the, the, the big selling point, they said, 
And you know, and by the way, you can you, you have to come out to California for four weeks to quote train, you know. And I thought, yeah, yeah. Yes, I was twenty six or twenty seven at the time. I thought, yeah, you know, I'll take the Atari job. Yeah, sure. So so I was gonna ask you about how how was the integration with your American colleagues at Atari? Was was there this kind of cultural chasm or or were the Anglo USA and Irish relations good from the outset? And they were very good from the outset. I, I think that the in a weird way, the the Irish and, and the Californians and Gil was a big part of this you know he was a welshman so he kind of could skip between both cultures Mm. the californians were relatively laid back you know they were they weren't they weren't pushy people they weren't new i was used to working with americans in the chewing gum company and even at price waterhouse and uh mostly east coast type Mm. people Mm. but the the atari people were friendly Mm. and easy to get on with and you know i used to say i mean they were very very similar type cultures apart from the fact that they smoked weed more than we did and 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 it rained a lot with us and it was dry as hell in california not as dry as it is now mind you with Atari then, you went from financial controller to managing director of the plant. Yeah, in one year it was, I mean, again, because this was a small business, you know. Yeah. We broke even, we started, I joined in August of 78. The financial year was the end of, of December of that year, December of 78. We managed to break even in that period. And I was the financial controller, I was the fourth employee, but we managed to make enough games and we had low enough expense base to actually break even in that. We started production in probably October, November. So we only had, you know, relatively little production, but because we had such a low cost base we we actually made money at this right from the start Mm -hmm. and and um it was the american guy gil williams had an american wife and three american kids with him Mm. and they never adapted to life in tipperary particularly his wife you know she lived in the countryside and everything like that and i guess it all sounded like a nice adventure when you come over in june july of 78 but you know when it's november december of 78 and january february of 79 and it's cold and wet and you know how it is yeah uh, it just doesn't. It's not as nice anymore. So Gil had to Gil had to pull up sticks uh, a year and a half after he turned up here in in, in August of seventy nine, and uh, I got the job. Right, right. Did you, Kevin? Did you get an opportunity to get hands on with the arcade cabinets, or was this strictly a suit and tie um, uh, situation for me? Yeah. Um, did you play any games? Oh, I played games, you know, but but. Uh, uh, certainly played games because I mean w- when we started up they shipped over six, seven, eight different games including a few pinballs because they were still making pinballs at that yes, time yes. and and uh, we had our own little mini game room and you know that was one of the attractions of the job for a lot of people you know we hired people just based on the fact oh we can play free video games you know back then there weren't video games everywhere yeah. and this was a big selection of games that people hadn't seen before and you know they would periodically send us over other ones and all that kind of thing Did you have a favourite Kevin? At that time? Yeah I liked the simple stuff like break and I like the pinball game. We had a game called Middle Earth and Superman, another game that they made, they sent to us. Ah, that's a, I believe that's a Mike Halley um, joint venture is Superman. Um, I believe you had some big creative names um, from Atari pop over from time to time. I yes. certainly know you have Dave Toya and you had Mike Zhang and Owen Rubin. Yes. Do you have any, do you have recollection of these visits and meeting these guys? You know, honestly, not that much, you know. I mean, we did have people, I think maybe some of that stuff happened after I was there. Right, um, Okay. Um, because you got to remember, again, I was a narrow window. I was 78 to 84. Yes. And the company went on for another 14 years after that to 98. So I was there six of the 20 years that they were physically, you know, producing games. I mean, we had lots of the senior guys like um, Steve Bristow. Yes. Steve Jobs' only boss. The only job that uh, Steve Jobs ever had was working for Steve Bristow. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. 
a sporter of um, unique facial furniture, at least according to Paul's recollection. He had a very unusual beard. It was sort of Dickensian looking, uh, with great big sideburns and everything. Yeah, I was at his funeral about, I don't know, three years ago. They were all there, like uh, Bushnell was there, Joe Keen and all those guys. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's sorely missed, yeah. I'm sure. Kevin, we hear a lot about the the relaxed vibe at Atari in Sunnyvale. And uh, again, coming back to another one of Paul's uh, uh, preoccupations, <laughs> the hot tub and marijuana parties at Atari. Uh, did, did Tipperary have its... Um, have its equivalent no we didn't have that you know it it, it wasn't a marijuana culture in, in, in no sure of we course more of a, a beer culture yes of course yes yes and and uh, i remember we had very memorable we used to always have a big party at a midsummer's night party uh, that would sort of start at 11 o'clock and go on till you know right through the night till five o'clock in the morning kind of stuff uh, in, in june that that was our standard party we did discuss doing a hot tub okay so i think i mentioned shane breaks before shane, shane breaks was our salesman and uh, we bought this country house for Shane. It was called Fedemore House. Right. And 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 we Shane wanted to put in a, a giant hot tub for for the employees and uh, that kind of thing. It was relatively near the factory, but uh, <laughs> this company at that stage had started to get a little bit more sober, and it was more, right. Okay. More mainline kind of old school management, and the word got back to California. We were going to build this hot tub, and that was like, stop! You're not going to do that, you know. Oh, what a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a little aside here, Kevin, um, I believe you, uh, you you grow your own back at home. Is that correct? I do. In fact, I'm in the middle of uh, of harvesting right now. I've, I took a taking time out for this. Uh, my hands are I had to clean my hands; they're all sticky at the moment. Okay. I had a big crop. You know, with with the lockdown and everything, I decided to start growing again. I used to grow. I grew from five years straight from 2012 to 2016, and I had a huge crop in 2016. So much so that I'm still smoking the old stuff. You know, they say it only lasts one and a half to two years, but I packed it very well. I keep it dark, and I'm still using. My sons won't take it. They said that it's got no punch anymore. Right. But uh, but it's good enough for an old guy like me. Okay. <laughs> but I'm running out of it. So this year I decided, okay, I'm growing again, and I've got. I've got it hanging in my garage right now, drying, and in fact, just started trimming it, which is an awful job. I don't know if you've ever done it, but it's... I haven't. No, we don't. We I haven't had the pleasure. <laughs> it's the worst part of growing weed is the trimming. Okay. It's labor intensive. You you go batty from it. You get all sticky all the time from the resin, you know? Yeah. Okay. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's God awful job. So I imagine I am... I can feel a, I can feel a Ted Dabney experience road trip coming on, <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was just going to say we I think we're going to when we can get on an aeroplane, Kevin. I think we may be heading your way. Just to be clear, it's for my own use. It's for my own use in case the government is listening to this, it's for my own use. I never sell it. I give it away to friends. If any of you guys are in the area, you're welcome. We're your friends. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know the Californian law. Um I'm and I'm I'm It's a bit jumbled. It's it's Yeah, go it's, on, tell in us. In California it's legal, uh but the feds say it isn't. Um uh, so Right. <laughs> Screw the feds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't think uh, the feds are going to bother with my little grow, you know. Kevin, you joined uh, Atari Island in 1978, just after Space Invaders had uh, had exploded. And one of the first games you were involved with was Atari Soccer. And that was kind of based on um, Atari Football, which had been a huge success in America. Was um, was Atari Soccer a similar success? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> it was a minor disaster. Uh, I remember we, we built the, the first prototypes. Um, we had to build these things. I think it was about September of 1978. 19... 
79, 79, it had to be September of 79. And um, right at the time, the Pope was visiting Ireland. Oh. And uh, the Pope was going all over Ireland having these mega masses, you know. Uh, and one of them was in Limerick, which is half an hour's drive from us. And we were trying to build these things. I remember working all night with a couple of guys because we couldn't get a lot of people to come in. A lot of them went to this. And there was a couple of hundred thousand people at this mass in Limerick, <laughs> um, you know, which is a big deal for a city of 50,000 people. Yeah, of course. And uh, we, we worked all night to get it ready for what they called the previews. Mm-hmm. Previews were, was a coin-op, a sort of little coin-op show that was held in that sort of September, October period in West London. Uh, and we worked all night assembling this Atari soccer and we sent it over. And I think the immediate reaction was, this is a heap of crap. <laughs> this is not a seller, you know. Uh, I was just thinking, you've, you've missed a trick there because wasn't Pope John Paul II a big football fan? Couldn't you have got him to come to the factory and sort of bless the soccer cabinets i think we were extremely low on his priorities <laughs> okay. so soccer might not have been a huge success but soon atari does have a huge success which is asteroids yeah um can you remember when you know when the the board came over so you know you saw the game that you're going to produce i mean when you see a game like asteroids kevin did you think wow this is going to be a hit yes yeah, we knew straight away. I think they sent us a whole a whole game initially. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember exactly, but usually a lot of the time they would send us one game, maybe mm-hmm. an early prototype or something like that. And uh, I, I I recall, you know, you can always tell because guys would the, the the line workers would stay behind after work and play it, and there was guys staying behind. I, it was hard to get a game on that thing because there was people that finished work at five o'clock or whatever it was, and suddenly you'd see several of them still congregating, and these were all young guys. <laughs> they, they'd be hanging around there at seven o'clock or eight o'clock in the evening still playing the game so we kind of knew it was going to be big and uh, nobody did that with the soccer game <laughs> right that's a good sign um of course uh whilst it's great to have a hit game of course you's actually got to produce the game that must have brought a lot of challenges so what was it like when you had to ramp up to produce those tens of thousands perhaps of asteroids cabinets yeah i can't remember the exact number but i i, I think the upright version the main one was over ten thousand, mm. and then there was the cocktail version and the what they call the cabinet the small upright version of it mm-hmm. you know several thousand each of those uh, it was trying it was difficult i mean and i remember being on the line myself uh for 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 several days we, we had a sort of target to make by the end of june really like to get i think it was end of june was our target day to get up to 125 a day consistently and we just about made it and you know i kind of i was very hands-on it wasn't a good wasn't a good assembler. <laughs> I was on the line. I had my spot, and I had my drill, and all the rest of it. And you know, and I helped assemble them. And I kind of enjoyed it. it. Was kind of hard work, harder than I thought it was going to be. Kevin, you were the managing director at this point, rolling up your sleeves. Uh, I was, but I'd hired a financial controller, uh, a guy called Mike Nevin, who subsequently took over for me when I left. Um, yeah. I'm just intrigued that that you know you were you were the management there, senior management, and yet you'd roll your sleeves up yeah. and get on the line. Um, was did that create some you know respect? from your employees you know i kind of i've always been a believer in uh, field generals if you mm-hmm. like you know from a military point of view and everything else and um I, I, it also helped me understand the problems associated with doing it and everything else and I, I don't want to boost myself here too much but i thought i wanted to lead by example if you like yeah. um i don't want to make it sound like it was anything like war far from it but it was it was hard sweaty work even in, in cold tipperary you know well talking of war some of the other 
other games you uh, made there definitely had a war theme. Missile Command. Yes, a great game. Battle Zone. Yeah. Uh, tell us about Missile Command. It's uh, Tony's kind of can play it a little bit, apparently. So um, when you see a game like that, again, do you think this is going to be great? Yeah, we knew that was going to be good too. That was straight after after Asteroid, uh, and we did very well with it. It was the first really successful colour game that we did there, I think. Uh, we knew that that was going to be big also. I mean, really the three big games that we did in Temporary that did big volumes uh, and made a lot of money as well, because sometimes we did big volumes but didn't make a lot of money because we overmade them, if you like. You know, they, they misforecast the market or whatever. Like the, the third game we did was after Missile Command was Battlezone. Huh. And Battlezone was, it was a good game, but it just wasn't as good as Asteroids or or, um, or uh, Missile Command. So you ended up over-manufacturing Battlezone. Yes, so. we did. Resulted in us having to sell them off at a discount, either at a break-even or a loss probably at the end. I don't really remember. You've got to remember all this stuff is 40 years ago. Of course. You know, when you saw something like a Battlezone cabinet, i.e. this this strange setup with the, you know, the kind of viewfinder. Yeah. When you got that, was there a little bit of you when, what are they making us build this time? Uh, no, not really. I don't think so. I think we thought, okay, we had great respect for the engineers in California. We thought, hey, you know, they know what they're doing. Uh, you know, and we also understood that it was uh, sometimes you hit, sometimes you missed. And, uh, you know, you just, sometimes you just didn't know until you got it out there in volume. But in, in our business, you know, it was all about putting it out into various arcades and testing them and getting the results. And it was always the cash books t- told you. And we knew pretty well. We, we used to get the test results from California. And sometimes we'd get a game in early enough and we'd test it locally. It was a small arcade in, in temporary. And we put in there that for a week and stuff so we could get pretty instant feedback ourselves it was useful for us to because they didn't just tell us what we were to make the number of games we made of any particular cabinet or a kind of a tug of war bit thing between me Shane Briggs who was the sales guy in Ireland and the Californians pushing for more volume you know because they made profits by selling us printed circuit boards so they wanted to do the volumes but we had to sort of push back and say no Battlezone ain't that good we don't want to do <laughs> as many as Missile Command we certainly don't want to do as many as Asteroid because we're going to end it. You'll make a profit. We won't, you know? That's that's an interesting arrangement you've got there. You, you also alluded to the fact that you would see these games out in Tipperary yeah. and beyond. So would you wander into local pubs and perhaps loiter with a pint of Guinness? Yeah, we never put them in pubs. Irish pubs, at least in Tipperary, never wanted them. It was never the right place to do them. And usually there wasn't a volume of people, but in arcade, at least you'd get the kind of typical customer. One of our favourite subjects to ask about on the podcast is the brief rise and dramatic fall of Laserdisc games. I understand that, you know, when Atari licensed Dragon's Lair and later Space Ace, yeah. you actually produced those yes. in yeah. Ireland. What, 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 so what did you make of this uh, apparently exciting new technology? Well, the engineers in California, you know, not invented here syndrome, they were very sceptical of it. Okay. Uh, but they subsequently did Firefox, which is one of those kind of games. But Shane Briggs and I decided we need to be in this market so we went to cinematronics in el cajon in southern california down near san diego oh. and negotiated a deal with them for us to to buy the boards from them and uh, or buy the game from them essentially and uh, have the license for europe so that sounds like you could be quite proactive then you could say we need this game yeah yeah no we weren't told what to do at all i mean we would have to run it by people but they by and large let us do what we wanted to do in terms of the key decisions the key decisions were okay here's this game called dragon's lair we're going to build five we're going to build a thousand of them. Hmm. 
we're going to negotiate a deal with the people in cinematronics. Yeah. The guys in Cal- we, we we went on those cinematronics deals and we never even went hardly to see Atari when we were there. But basically, we went there to uh, to make a deal directly, and you know we paid them directly, all that kind of thing. Because they didn't have the they, they didn't do them in America. Cinematronics obviously did that themselves. The funny little story about Dragon's Lair, we, ju- we just launched Dragon's Lair, and I don't know if you know Ireland, Dublin, O'Connell Street, the main street, if you like, has a whole bunch of arcades. Did then, and still has quite a lot of arcades, all owned by Italian families mostly. Oh, that's interesting. I remember I remember we, we shipped one of our first Dragon's Lairs into um, this arcade, big arcade, I can't remember the name of it now, in O'Connell Street. And I My parents lived in Dublin, so I was up there to see them shortly afterwards, and I went into the arcade, and all these kids were there and they really hadn't got how to play it and just arrived. So I started playing it like I'm Mr. Cool, whereas I'm Mr. Below Average Game Player. But on this one, I was the man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they all came around. I said, oh, that's how you do it. Okay. And the owner came along. He gave me five pounds. Really? Yes. And I didn't bother. I had the heart to tell him who I was. I just sort of slunk out of there with my five pounds. You're a pro gamer, technically, there. That's I a... was pro That was the only money I earned from direct game playing, if you like. Fantastic. Now, myself and a lot of the UK uh, listeners will have played Dragon's Lair on one of the machines you made in Ireland, and it stayed with all of us. However, we all know what happened a little later with the technical problems. Kevin, at what point did you realise that this exciting new technology had got some issues? Oh, I think fairly early on. I think we knew it almost from the start that this was going to be a different kind of animal. And that was the basic problem that the the, the guys in California had with it too. They said, this stuff isn't designed for, for, these are consumer players they're they're just not going to take the 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 kind of the, the abuse they're going to get in arcade so we had all those kind of issues i mean i mean with firefox which was atari's own game afterwards and if you remember that that was the, yeah. the clint eastwood game uh, i remember going over to phillips in, in holland because they were the manufacturers of the laser disc players at that point and having all sorts of problems with them mm-hmm. and whatever i mean i think if you if you added up the whole thing we probably lost we lo- even though we did pretty well with dragon's lair and a lesser extent with spaces firefox kind of killed us I can't remember the numbers. I mean, they were a lot less than the asteroids and all that stuff. Yes, no, of course. Um, we've talked about money there. Yeah. So seeing as you've been the financial controller and then the managing director, should we talk cash? I mean, how much revenue were you generating at your at your place in Tipperary? Okay, I can, I can remember three years. Um, I can't remember the, the, what I call the butt period, the period in 78 where we, we broke even and we, I don't know, what, I mean, we sold a million dollars worth or something like that or less. But in the second, we, we by the way, we, all, we only build in dollars. It was always a dollar business. Mm-hmm. And we, we did $6 million sales in 79. So that was all pre-asteroids. I don't yeah. think there was, if there was asteroids in that, it was very little at, right at the end of it. But then the, we went from 6 million in 79 revenues and yeah. probably made, I, I don't really recall, but I would guess something under a million dollars profit. Okay. Yeah, not to not be sniffed at. <laughs> but the following year, we did $40 million and we made $13 million profit. Whew. Wow. But then the following year, it was about 30 million. Okay. That was 80, 81. And those were the best years. You know, after that, it sort of started tapering off. It, it was a very brief period for us of really big numbers. Yes, but you shone very brightly. I've, I've got to know, with that amount of money sloshing around, yeah. were you all driving sort of Ferraris around the little streets of Tipperary? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all, you know. When I look back in it, you know, you'd be almost embarrassed to think how much we got paid. Um, we were all pretty young, you know. 
Of course, the party did come to some of an end around 84. The whole business was going through a big crisis in 83, 84. Tell us how that affected Ireland. Was there a point when you thought, this is this is crashing? Yeah, very much so. And it started to crash in Europe before America. And that caused a lot of conflict within the company because the Americans would say to us, hey, things are fine here still. We're doing good. Uh, you know, we're let's say we're doing 5,000 to this game. Typically, then you should be doing one or 2,000 to that game and we say the market ain't there anymore people just don't want them and this is now you're talking mm-hmm. to uh, most of 82 and into 83 now we did have centipede i think in that year which was a great game that was probably the second best game right up there with missile command maybe it didn't do quite the missile command n- numbers but it if it had been in the missile command era it would have done yeah great game it was a big seller uh, and it kind of gave us a second win for a period but you know, we had this conflict then where the numbers started going south in Europe before they did in America. So come 1984, you actually leave Atari Island and I believe they scale down yeah. considerably as well. Yeah. Um, what, what was it like to leave this, you know, this company um, after all those years of these huge highs and then <laughs> these lows as well? It was... I'd always liked California. You know, I'd worked here as a student when I was like uh, 21. I worked in restaurants and stuff in Northern California, and I, I liked it. But I specifically went to the U.S. to set up a Tipperary, if you like, in El Paso, Texas. They, they, they had decided that California was too expensive to build coin-operated video games. And they already were building consumer, what they call the VCS, the video computer system, the, the main consumer product in El Paso, Texas, or along the border, a place called Matamoros on the Mexico side. You now they were kind of doing one of those maquiadoras, these um, trans-border deals. And they decided that... Um, I would be the one to set up a scaled down California Tipperary style factory in El Paso, Texas. So I arrived and it was supposed to be a six month contract. I was kind of going to be the Gil Williams <laughs> and Gil was no longer with the company. So I arrived in late June uh, into California on my way to Texas. I, I went in to get debriefed and, you know, and hook up with everybody and agree the plan and all this kind of stuff. I, I still remember I got in there on a Thursday. Uh, on, on a Monday morning, they announced that they had sold the company. Warner had dumped the company and sold it to Jack Trammell, the Commodore people. Oh, God, of course. Yes. Yeah. But they hadn't sold the coin-op part. No. They'd sold the consumer part, but the coin-op part was cut adrift. And it was total chaos because the computer systems were all integrated. Coin-op didn't have a separate thing, but no one in New York had really planned properly for this. And suddenly we had this business in California that was just in chaos. And all talk of El Paso, Texas was, you know, that, that just wasn't, there was nothing going to happen. There was no new factories. And over time we persuaded, uh, we decided El Paso didn't make any sense. Uh, we would stay in California. We would kind of re-export Tipperary to California and do a scaled-down style factory, which is what we did in July, August, September of uh, of '84. One of my lifelong I've been to lots of places in Texas, but even to this day, 36 years later, I've never been to El Paso, Texas. Kevin, you you talked about your uh, relocation to Atari in California with uh, grand plans to set up in El Paso, which clearly didn't come to pass. So, yeah. so, so what did you end up doing? Well, we submitted this plan to management that said, okay, El Paso doesn't make any sense anymore. For one thing, part of the reason was going to El Paso already had an Atari infrastructure there. You know, there were people there. There was factories. We could have tagged on to that because they were making the consumer products there. But the consumer products was now another business. You know, it was owned by Jack Trammell and the and 
and the Commodore company. Mm -hmm. There was no point in being involved with that. We said, look, if, if we approach it from a different angle and kind of get their costs down and don't make it as grandiose as we had it before because the volumes clearly aren't there. And that's what we did. And that was basically the factory that survived right until they shut it down, you know, whatever it was, 10, 15 years ago. I've forgotten now. Okay. It's it's kind of by the way type of uh, kind of thing, but it, was, it just occurred to me today. I was I, I drove up to uh, my son is moving from Sunnyville, which is down here in the valley, and there's about sixty miles south of San Francisco. And he's moving up to the city. He's a software engineer. You know, he works from home, so he thought I'd rather work from home in San Francisco than work from home in suburban Sunnyville. So I was helping him kind of strip down his apartment and move. And I was driving back, and I drove by the global headquarters of Netflix. And it just occurred to me, I should tell those guys, when I came first to California in 78, uh, right on that site has been demolished. Netflix headquarters was built over it. That was where the Atari construction factory was in Las Gatas, California. One of the main factories they had, the coin-op factory. Is that right? It's just interesting. It's just a continuous cycle. There you go. You had Atari there, and then you have now got Netflix. Right. Mm. I kind of, I left Atari uh, I stayed with them until 1990 and then joined Namco. And by the way, when, when I was at Atari, I, I was for a while, I was the CFO after a, and I was the VP of manufacturing. And then they decided to set up a um, an arcade business. So they bought a company called Barrel of Fun in, uh, in Savannah, Georgia. And I was boss of that. And then we, we bought other businesses. You know, we made what in retrospect was very stupid business decisions. We, we became the giant of the operating business in uh, in America. We, we had over 400 arcades at one point. And this was a subsidiary of Atari? This was a subsidiary of Atari, but then it was bought by Namco in early 90. Uh, Atari and Namco was, was kind of a... The, the Atari in California was a joint venture with, with Namco and Warner Communications, but... Then that Atari got into this lawsuit with Nintendo. It's a long story. Uh, and they got into financial difficulties. And to finance themselves, they sold off the operating business. And I went with it to Namco 100%. And that's what I did until um, 2008. And how was the transition for you, Kevin, you know, moving essentially to a to a B2C company from a B2B business? Different mindset? Uh, it was different. Yeah, it was it was different, it, different. And, you know, for, for, for me personally, the biggest adjustment was in a, a B2C company, you're dealing with, uh, you're dealing directly with customers, obviously, but more importantly, almost from your point of view, you're dealing with a lot of staff and you're dealing a lot of with a lot of you know, fairly high end engineers and well-educated, trained people in the B2B business, yeah? But then in the B2C business, as you say, uh, it was dealing with teenagers, guys in their 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, that kind of thing as our own staff. All over the country, we were in 40 plus states. Uh, there was all that kind of the challenges that came with that. It became much more of a people business than anything else, just dealing with people and all the 2,000 employees at our peak. It was just, it was just that's what it was. It was dealing with people more than anything else. And at the same time, you know, the truth was, I, I always, think about it as the turning point came with PlayStation and what is it 94 or whatever once PlayStation came and Atari did or Namco at that time did very well some of the first games that came out Ridge Racer and Tekken and those games were very successful and Namco did very well but the Namco coin up business was just uh, started to fail after that it was just a slow death from then on and was it quite an eye-opener to um, learn what it was like at the sharp edge of you know, basically trying to get coins out of consumers' pockets into machines. Yes. Um, it, it must have been interesting to have gone from, well, we're just selling boxes to, Christ, we've actually got to get these boxes to pay for themselves. We got to, and we got to, we got to make our money a quarter at a time. It's a, yeah. it's a dirty, hard business. We bought this uh, barrel of fun place and we went in there and um, uh, they... <laughs> 
They had, they used to have the walls, they used to carpet the walls. You were talking about soundproofing earlier on. That was part of the deal there. They used to have shag carpets on the walls. And they had, and some of the places down south, I forget the exact expression, but they used to have these signs made up on the walls. No, I think the word was no gobbing. What gobbing went, went was spitting out chewing tobacco. His customers would spit the freaking chewing tobacco out onto the walls and the shag carpets. It was god awful. Oh, nice. <laughs> But your background in bubblegum surely should have helped with that. It surely must have helped, yeah. <laughs> I, I asked for that, didn't I? <laughs> it is interesting talking to... Um, uh, we, we had Gary Vincent on um, a few weeks back, and Gary... Yes, I, I heard that, yeah. Yeah, he, some of the stories he was telling us about the things he finds in the public toilets and the state they're left oh, in. It's just, yeah. it, it was just like, what, why did I ever come into this business of dealing with the general public who were coming? I know. I always tell my kids in general, if you can avoid it, don't deal with the public. They're nice people, but you'd rather not deal with them every day. Of course, now you're retired, Kevin. I've been retired for quite some time. I did, just to finish my, my career, I mm. spent a couple of years involved with a company in Lancashire. I got involved with importing this game called um, uh, Poker Card, which was uh, a game basically playing um, Texas Hold'em poker, uh-huh. four-player game. It did okay. We sold a few hundred of them. I did that till about 2010, and then I said, screw it. I'm putting out more money than I'm getting back. It's just not got a future, and I decided to retire. Got into the weed business. Good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Kevin, does it surprise you that your your product from back then is now highly prized by, you know, by nerdy collectors over here in the UK and around the world? It astonishes me, but I don't have a real, I mean, the only sense of, I, I don't follow it a lot, other than looking at arcadeblogger.com. I don't really follow it a lot, so I probably don't understand it in the same way that you guys do. Mm, but Thanks for the shout out, Kevin. I'll- I've never heard of that website. You might want to... <laughs> That's at least the second. I'll send you your twenty dollars by PayPal. <laughs> Five pounds will be fine each for each mention. Yeah, done. But that's the bar we've set. <laughs> yes, but that was that was nineteen eighty three. So probably I do, do need an increase. It, it is funny. I'm I'm sitting here, Kevin. My office doubles as an arcade, and I'm yeah. I'm looking around me, and I I've got an Irish Battlezone cabaret. I've got an Irish Centipede cabaret. I've got an Irish Asteroids cabaret, and I've got an Irish Tempest cabaret, and I've got an Irish Missile Command upright. And it's just odd to me to think that you may have stroked your fingers across some of my arcade cabinets like, if, <laughs> if i can put it like that <laughs> it could very well have. can i ask you how have they held up oh they're great they're good machines to restore because mm. when you deconstruct them you realize actually they're pretty easy stuff you know the coin door goes there that the wiring goes into the ar2 yeah. the power bricks are fairly similar once you've worked on one you've worked on a hundred right for me it's about the pcbs but there are guys far cleverer than me that when my battle zone goes tits up which it tends to do every six months thank you there's someone up there in Cheshire that I can just box it up, bubble wrap it, and he fixes it. And two weeks later, it comes back all, all, um, all fixed. Right, so there's there's people who make a living doing that kind of stuff. I wouldn't say they make a living, but there's hobbyists where you, okay, you right. know, they they'll charge you for the parts and a you know and fifty quid and a beer when you see them next time. Right. They're out there. They're they're becoming fewer, but um, but yeah, it is it is interesting that that people now collect these things and they revere them. And ultimately, as we said before, they they were just boxes that were built for a price and sold it a profit. I find it interesting that what was ostensibly a business has now become a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and it's, it's on that lines, you know, I, I didn't mention, but not to brag too much, but proceeding to do 
do so. Um, I was also in that period in the 90s, most of the 90s and into the 2000s, I was head of Namco America Inc., which was the sales part of the of, of Namco. So we sold the stuff there. And we did a lot of business towards the end selling to Brookstone, which is a big catalog, kind of a, a sharper image type business. And we sold a lot of this Pac-Man's, all that kind of stuff, uh, directly to them that they put in their brochures and sold to, to customers, mm. directly to consumers. Of sold thousands of those things. Yeah. And are you still in touch with people from Atari now, Kevin? Uh, you know, so much, the main guy I have regular, in fact, I talked to him this morning, Mike Nevin, who was the guy that succeeded me in Tipperary and mm-hmm. subsequently uh, headed up Namco Europe in London. Uh, I talk to him regularly. Uh, I get together. We have five years. We've had, had three different times in the last 10 years and 15 years we've had Atari get-togethers, uh-huh. coin up people that are still around, and uh, a whole bunch of people turn up. So you obviously, I mean, you speak of these meetings and these get-togethers, you obviously have fond memories of your time at Atari Island. Yes, I do. I, I, I do. Look, a job you have like that, and I remember Shane Briggs telling me at the time, he said, this will be the best job you ever have in your life. You'll remember this more than anything else. And I had a lot bigger jobs afterwards, but yeah. you never quite, well, because it went, it sort of went like a rocket so quick. Yeah, sure. It went from 6 million to 40 million. Uh, we traveled the world. We had we had a lot of fun we worked very hard and I think in some ways we were too young to appreciate it what, what it was you know yeah yeah. Uh, you think it's going to go on forever of course it doesn't and that's what I always tell my kids it never goes on forever it gets better it gets worse if it's very high it's going to come down at some point just the way it is yeah sure so retired since 2010 yeah now living in California as you have been for some time yes uh, just generally speaking uh, you know climate and forest fires aside which are plaguing you guys at the moment yeah. how do you generally find it over there you you a happy man. I, I like living in California. Now, where I live is kind of forested enough, and it's the guy near me has 10 acres of woodland and canyon and stuff. Mm. If that got on fire, I could have a problem. Uh, but I've got a fire station very near me. You, know, that, uh, you, you start to think about things like that more. I listen to some of the people up in wine country that have gone through their third fire in three years. Mm, some of them yeah. have been burnt down twice. And I think, yeah. you know, if, if climate change keeps going like this, you know, maybe I'm back in Ireland in three or four years. Who knows, you know? Kevin, thanks so much for sharing all those amazing stories and also having a big part of creating the cabinets that defined our childhood. I just wondered if you still had any in your home. You know, I don't because my wife doesn't like them. The only one I had and still have, but I'm starting to dismantle and throw it away, is a poker card that I've you know, got in 2010, uh, which is not an Atari thing at all. This is from the guys up in Cheshire. Up in, uh, but I don't have... I have friends, though. I've, I've got a guy who was... Uh, Mark Sherman was a technician at, uh, at Atari... Uh, you know, border pair guy, that kind of thing. I see him regularly. And and, and Bob Stewart ran the factory with me in, in California here. And they have games in their homes. So I play the games in their homes and get to use them without having them physically here. For me, Kevin, thank you so much. Uh, this has been really enlightening. Uh, without doubt, one of our more in-depth, interesting discussions. And I think um, our US listeners will be interested to hear about the comings and goings in uh, Tipperary, Atari Island. Kevin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for sharing your stories. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank you.